Messy Situations is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. I can remember drinking as early as 13, getting busted for it at a university. I grew up in a university town where alcohol and the procurement of alcohol was like a sport akin to lacrosse. And we really went at it hard from a very young age. And so it's almost been like a multivitamin in my life since I was young. It's not been one of those things where I can identify that I'm like binge drinking or, or you know, a sloppy wreck. It's just been part of my daily social life since I was very, very young. Hey everyone, I'm Kane Sarhan. And I'm Michelle Promaleko. Welcome back to Messy Situations, the podcast where we break down and break through all of life's messes, mm -hmm. always starting with ourselves. Today's a messy day in New York. Oh my God. Josie, our guest, actually was on the subway line Ugh. where there was a shooting. You know, we're recording this episode the day of the shooting in New York City, um, in Brooklyn, on the subway station, where they also found what is believed to be a man in a smoke mask with undetonated explosives. It's so upsetting. It's more than messy. I don't even know what to call it. It's just disturbing. You know, and this week it was, or late last week, it was the shooting in Israel and, and there's the bombing in New York. And I was talking to Rebecca, my business partner from The Well. I, I just like, I texted her this morning. I was like, how the hell, how the hell are we here? Like, how are we here? And she like very astutely was like, you had a world that was like, felt like it was on the precipice before. And like the pandemic has taken that like thin string broken everyone right and it's yeah, just like it's I mean, just we're, like <laughs> we're in a transformative period in so many ways and it's such an awakening for so many people but this brutality that we're having to experience on the way to hopefully something better is is really just pushing everybody to the edge and that's just the big macro stuff sometimes things that don't even affect us personally let alone the things we're dealing with on an individual level yeah and i, I think it's just like the layers and the weight of it all you know what I mean? In that it spans from these big macro global city messes down to like, you know, I today literally threw a ice latte across half the gym floor not paying attention. Those two things are very different, but but it feels like messes just, feels just like everywhere. Everything's a mess. Well, I have a, a lighter messy situation to discuss, which is I got a wedding invitation from a friend who's on her third marriage. And I'm not judging okay. the third marriage. I mean, third time's the charm. That's cool. But you're having another wedding? Like full-on wedding. <laughs> yeah. And Is she registered for gifts? Well, we haven't gotten that. It was actually a save the date. It wasn't, oh, okay, it wasn't okay, an invite, okay. but it was a save the date indicating there's going to be an actual wedding. And I love this person. She's someone I'm really close to. I've been to her other two weddings and I'll probably go to this one. But I kind of feel a little bit like, really? A third one? Can I ask how long were the first two? A couple of years. Maybe the first one was like 10 years. The second one, a couple years. And it's been probably like 10 years between. I mean, this is like, I think this is really the love of her life. And I think that's one of the reasons she wants to actually have the wedding and the celebration. Mm. She feels like she finally found the one. And I get it. But, you know, it's kind of draining on the bank account. Well, it's draining on the bank account. And it's also my mom was actually married three times. She's been married to my stepfather, who's her third marriage, for over 25 years. And I remember when they got married, it was just them, and they took 
we were a Brady Bunch family. There were five boys. They took all five of us boys, and it, that was the wedding. It was like us five and them. And I remember my mom being like, I've already done that twice. I'm not going to do it again. But what they did was a year later through like a giant, very casual party, no gifts, no nothing. It was like literally just like a celebration of them and them welcoming people to like this like 250 person party, which felt really great because they were so in love and they still are so in love. And I think they were so excited about their relationship. Yeah, I think what your mom did or your parents did makes sense. I think my messy situation. Yeah, no, no. But my I mean, if you consider New Jersey a destination, which sometimes I do. But still, it's (laughs) it's outfits and things. Yeah, it's all the things. and And so the messy situation is this is one of my closest friends. Do I dare not go? Probably not. That would be an even messier situation. You have to go. The dissolution of a friendship, probably. I probably have to go. No, you're going. Well, we are going to talk about something far more important than that than deciding whether to go to a party. I mean, let's be serious. (laughs) All things Um, are relative. We are going to talk to my friend Josie, who's here today, to talk about a situation that I think is very relatable, and that is when your social drinking or your drinking at home with the family starts to feel like it's teetered into unhealthy territory. A.K.A. the past two years for every adult over the age of 21. Yeah, just about everybody, or a lot of people at least, but not a lot of people that I know, myself included, have had the discipline necessarily to change course. And Josie has. Spoiler alert, she quit drinking. But I want to back into why she did that, because I think it was a bold, brave, and I would think not that easy thing to do, given how much drinking culture surrounds us. I have been one of those friends who hasn't pressured her to drink, but I have to be totally honest. It bums me out a little when I get together with friends and they they don't want to make me feel better about my drinking. I just want to be honest. Like, that's the truth. 100% true. As someone who has quit drinking about 3,700 times. And has never made it more than the longest I've ever not drank is the well cleanse, which is 15 days. <laughs> yeah. Um, and even that I'm like shaking at the end. I have a lot of respect for folks who, who leave alcohol behind. And it's not always people who maybe like are traditionally classified as like, quote unquote, alcoholics. Right. right? Of like, course. I think Often it's not. By medical diagnosis, I'm a functioning alcoholic or a social alcoholic. A lot of us are. It's more than four drinks a week. Right. Which. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It's actually. Yeah. It's actually four drinks a week takes you above above that level. If you look at like old Western medical classifications, almost every New Yorker I know is a functioning alcoholic. If that's the case. But now that we know that I'm an alcoholic, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll return to talk to Josie about her and her story. Welcome back. Josie, sort of turning it over to you and, and sort of leaning into starting that story. A little bit of background. So live in New York City, family, and what role has sort of alcohol played in your life leading up to where the story takes us? Well, I want to circle back to something that Michelle was saying, which struck me, which is what I've learned in the last uh, six months of, I guess you would call it sobriety, is that I would say that I'm a gray area drinker. That area is where 
I would never classify myself as an alcoholic or even probably would have said that I was a problem drinker in the sense that it never, in my adulthood, my drinking has not directly affected my productivity or my ability to make it to the office or mm -hmm. my relationship with my husband or even my relationship to my friends and family. But what I will say is that it's had a pretty profound relationship to my health and my sense of um, well-being and my sense of centeredness in myself as I've reached 50 plus, just a bit plus. And um, I started drinking when I was probably 13 years old. Um, I was raised in an affluent town where, you know, you couldn't wait to get your first drink on. Yeah. I can remember drinking as early as 13, getting busted for it at a university. I grew up in a university town where alcohol and the procurement of alcohol was like a sport akin to lacrosse. And we um, really went at it hard from a very young age. And so it's almost been like a multivitamin in my life since I was young. It's not been one of those things where I can identify that I'm like binge drinking or, or, you know, a sloppy wreck. It's just been part of my daily social life since I was very, very young. And I think that's actually, it's something that I was actually just talking to my husband about this is because he's Venezuelan and, and Latin culture. And he talks about how like he had friends visiting this weekend. It's like, well, you start drinking in Venezuela at 12 or 13. And I'm like, well, what's the legal drinking age? And they're like, well, it's 18, but whenever. And He's like, what's interesting, though, is and this is where I think the, the society of like this whole prohibition era crap that we still deal with 100 years later in America is he's like alcohol culture is very different in Latin America. Right. And that you get a half glass of wine at dinner at 13 so that you're not trying to like do this thing that people tell you not to do. And you're like secret binge drinking like I was with the cows like at 14 on the farm. And it's just like it creates more of a healthier relationship with it because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of these big university towns, a lot of this culture, same with me of like. It was a sport, finding it, getting away well, with it, hiding it. it's the forbidden fruit. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Anecdotally, I agree with you. I don't know, you know, if culturally, if you're given wine earlier, if that prevents that kind of forbidden oh, yeah. fruit no thing. No idea but, if there's science behind But no, 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 no. But, I, but it makes sense. And I think it's like you want what you can't have, right? I mean, I relate to Josie's story so much. I mean, that was me as a teenager. I mean, I was, I had a beer bong in the trunk of my car. Mm -hmm. Oh, not, no, what, I'm not. I'm what not I would give to see Michelle <laughs> Pramileko do a fucking beer bomb. I'm quite I sure crushed. she would do it with elegance. I, I know. Aww, still today. Thank you, Josie. So, did, Josie, did that behavior, did it like, how did that continue into your, you know, 20s, 30s, you well, know, adult life? It, would, it, it ebbed and flowed. There were times where I'd suddenly catch myself and recognize that I was maybe getting a little too far ahead of myself. I did have a lot of friends that went to rehab very young ages. Mm -hmm. By the time I made it to college, I did get into a habit of like, you know, drinking wine by myself late in into the night while I would work on my um, art school assignments. I was in art school and I thought it was very, you know, chic and, and cool to have a giant bottle of like Woodbridge crappy wine and make my way through that while I would like sit at my drafting table. And then I would suddenly sort of sober up to that notion and realize like that was too much and I would go sort of off that for a while. It wasn't until I, I got pregnant, that was the first sustained period of time that I was sober. So, you know, that nine, 10 months of sobriety while you're pregnant, or actually found out I was pregnant after having like a heavy margarita night. So that doesn't totally qualify, but I was sober all the way through my pregnancy, but couldn't wait to have that first glass of wine once she was born. And because I was a supernatural mama and I was nursing and I had natural childbirth and I was kumbaya about everything, I would pump and dump. That was the earliest recognition of like mom culture with drinking sort of was that, 
your friends couldn't wait to get you alone and have those first margs together so that you'd come home like bloated out to here trying to you know getting ready to nurse but you'd have to dump all that because you couldn't put that quote poison into your baby and that's yeah. when things started to shift because I was like wait a minute what am I doing like I'm putting a alcohol into my body that I can't actually give to my child and so I would have to get rid of milk that was supposed to sustain her yeah. in order to feed her carefully so those are like little symbols those are little moments in your brain that kind of you you know you pack yeah, away like, file away that yeah. you're like there's something you not file right it away but you don't yeah you don't but, give it a lot of credit but it's totally normalized later. I mean I know the term pump and dump yeah and I'm not getting holier than thou about it because at the time it was happening the culture was shifting so when my daughter was born it was the birth of Facebook as well ah so interestingly social media was born around the same time my daughter was and so I was raising her with many many witnesses and a ton of anxiety and a culture that was saying well you and I had a very powerful job and I was you know immediately had to hand her over after childbirth practically to my husband and therefore to um, daycare to get on a train and to you know continue on with my job where I was traveling and commuting and I looked at alcohol as my reward system and I had to find a way to balance that with seeing her and being a good parent but in a culture that was about like trying to sort of absolve yourself of all this pressure and stress by saying you know it's mommy wine time it's cabernet then sleigh and it's like it's very can, much sanctioned it's, it's sanctioned. not only sanctioned it's encouraged oh promoted encouraged with the clothing and the etsy shops later and all oh. the instagramming <laughs> and all of the memeing yeah. and some of the most interesting memories i have of it is like the deep desire to start drinking early with other parents so we would you know take our kids to the park but some of us would have like wine coolers or something like that while the kids were playing then often at halloween we would put you know we'd spike our cider in our thermoses while we did our halloween walks like, we were always looking for a way to get like take the edge off of parenting because somehow this message started coming through that like parenting was hard and you need to kind of numb out a little bit to deal with it but media does that right the dad having Absolutely. the beer after work yeah like you know, mommy needing her wine very after this. It's like it's, it's very it. much marketed yeah. with all of them. I think. But it's... as you're sitting here talking, my brain is so indoctrinated that I'm like, but Duh. is that really wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, parenting must be hard. I've been completely indoctrinated into it, <laughs> thinking it's normal to trick or treat with some. And, alcohol and that in your was thermos. fun. But what I would say about this, and this is where the gray area happens. While I wasn't drinking and getting bombed necessarily and waking up with like horrific hangovers, although there were a few times where I did you know, wake up with hangovers on, say, Christmas morning, where, like, we'd really party the night before with our friends and their kids, and maybe I'd forgotten to put the presents out. That happened. Oh. Another time, these are, like, these seemingly insignificant things to people without kids, but that are really emotional hangovers for years later, when you come downstairs and you realize, like, you forgot to move the elf on the shelf, and, like, your child's like, Mom, he didn't move, and you've been, like, cultivating this relationship with your child over the elf on the shelf, but you've forgotten because you were blotto like the Santa night fell before. asleep at the wheel. Yeah, kind of. And, well, those are, like, my incidents they sort of they bank in your emotional you, scores you, yeah. and you start to feel like crap about yourself as a parent and then it sort of feeds on itself and then you start to seek like-minded moms who also absolve you with more glasses of wine and more you deserve this you're it's a hard job but but really like do I need to be drunk to deal with my child like do I actually have to be like do I need to be not connecting why can't I be sober in this situation why yeah. isn't this something I can actually handle and and are there other tools I could maybe use yes. besides alcohol to handle yes. these situations because this is something where and I know that this sort of came to a head during the pandemic I even during the pandemic had a moment of like why am I dealing with this stress this anxiety this 
fear, this anger, whatever the hell I was feeling with, like, why is it like to kill on the rocks? White Claw. When did this really start becoming like a wait? Like, this is something I really need to start dealing with. Well, I think I cruised through those early years of her life without a real awareness of, of what that was doing to my body and to my relationships. I think that I sustained uh, a healthy relationship with my husband and my child all throughout that time. It was around my 40s that it shifted. So while my daughter grew up and some of that anxiety about parenting started to ease a little bit, and I started sort of separating from some of the parents of the children's friends and that kind of responsibility shifted. Alcohol became more about prestige and about sophistication. And that was the era, that was the decade of unfined wines and, you know, Instagram-worthy bar carts. And sorry, oh. Michelle, yours are, is one of my favorite ones I've ever <laughs> looked at and tried to replicate. <laughs> I um, did write a whole article about that, but yeah, okay. You no, did. You're right. But, but you know, omakase, you know, yes. sake flights and uh, trips to Napa. Like, my alcohol consumption became about making sure that people, it was documented. The whiskey tours. The, the whiskey yeah, yeah, yeah. tours. They were, they, it really became about being hip and elegant elegant and artistic and recognized for being a woman of the world. And I was making more money. So therefore, I was spending a great deal more money on alcohol, good, mm -hmm. fine whiskeys. And, you know, it was the $70 bottle instead of the $30 bottle. And it was yeah, the- Yeah, there's definitely a cachet you know, to it. Cachet. We, both, we both took significant birthdays and Napa trips. Yes, we did. Exactly around our 40s. I yeah. think our 40th birthday, both of us did that. I just literally had a binger in Vegas. Like, yeah. I get it. But they became, that that sort of keeping up with the, the Joneses of the Instagram world became a sort of another gray area drinking thing. Now, again, all through all of this, I don't want to sound like I was, you know, highly functioning as I continue to be. I held a very high responsibility job. Again, my marriage, very strong. And I managed to provide for my family. So I didn't see any of this as a problem. None of it was a problem except for, again, those emotional hangovers had persisted, those senses of like, is this really necessary? Like if you swapped out alcohol for cocaine, you would say I was a cocaine addict if every single day. And that's the thing I actually, that I is such a it. good point because we've normalized alcohol consumption yes. because it's legal. Any other drug, you'd be an addict. But Truthfully, it wasn't a problem for you in the way that it can be for other people. You were highly functioning. But fast forwarding a little bit, we're going to take a break before we get to the stage where you felt like you had to put it down. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back. Okay, so we're back with Josie, and Josie, you've, you know, described a really high-functioning relationship with alcohol, but a consistent one. But more recently, it got to a point where you felt it was problematic enough for you to step away from it. So tell me about that. So in the pandemic, my daughter, who had already started out being a very anxious person, really developed even more severe anxiety and also developed other sort of uh, emotional responses to the lockdown. And I was also using that time period to really bone up on my natural wine <laughs> skills. I was buying, you know, $400 cases and thinking that I was going to save them, but I would end up drinking them uh, because they were lower alcohol. They were only 12%, you know. Practically a health drink. 
practically literally like my multivitamin. So I would start the day with coffee and then I would transition around four to wine. <laughs> you know, it's like it was one of those things. And I was cooking a lot of fancy meals and we were in the pandemic. So I wasn't working in the office anymore. So my days were spent in my accumulated uh, collection of schmatas that I was walking around wearing. And I was gaining a lot of weight without realizing it. So it's very slow going at this point in 2020, 2021. And we sort of decamped to my parents have a, a summer home and we were fortunate enough to go and work from there for a sustained period of time and we brought our daughter with us and when we were doing all remote everything and around that time I started drinking gin and tonics very early in the afternoon every day was sunset every day there was a sunset so there was a reason to cheers mm -hmm. and I noticed that I started to respond to my daughter's anxiety with an almost um, a very disturbing but only disturbed me later in reflection sort of desire to try to pull her out of her anxiety by giving her alcohol. I started saying, like, would you like a glass of wine? Wow. And she's not a drinker. She's unlike, not a drinker. Unlike us, when we were her age mm -hmm. and we were sneaking and we would have been thrilled if somebody actually mm -hmm. offered us a drink. She actually doesn't drink, mm -hmm. which is her choice and admirable. Can I ask her age? She's 18 now, but her choice to not drink is largely based on her anxiety about throwing up. She's very scared to vomit. And so like she that. has this very, like almost like like a real phobia. Phobia, yeah. It's like so the, yeah. she's been with her friends when they've all, every one of them has vomited many times from alcohol. So she has a, very, a real aversion and fear that that's what's going to happen to her. So for me, I started having this attitude of like, well, maybe I'll take the stick out of her ass if I just give her a half a glass of wine. And let she'll her know she's not going to puke every time. And yeah. because I was a teenager that had alcohol around at all times, it just seemed to me that maybe my daughter needed to loosen up a little bit. And it was happy hour for us, so why doesn't she drink? this natural wine and tell us all about how delicious it is so she could like learn the difference between like little penguin and you know this petite whatever. it's an education right so I couched those offers in this sense of like she was sophisticated enough she was old enough well in Italy they'll be drinking at this age anyway and then I recognized that I was starting to sort of push it a little bit like push it on her and she would take a sip and she'd put it back and she'd say thanks yeah that's okay it's all right it's okay and she didn't enjoy it and it Did always she ever made call me call feel... you out like yeah. mom why are you pushing no, alcohol it was subtle I'm Sure. It was subtle. I wasn't like that soused mom that was like, why don't you yeah. have one of those You know, I wasn't sitting there with a martini in my hand in a, in a moo moo, like, yeah. you know, at, at a cigarette. I was, I looked for all intents and purposes completely innocent. I just made a beautiful Italian meal and we were sitting and I'm like, would you like a glass? And she'd be like, sure. So she would say yes, but she'd invariably not finish it. And I think that I was responding to her anxiety, thinking that because she wasn't on an anti-anxiety medication that maybe this would be like a, just an easy way of This would take the her. edge off just like it takes the yeah. edge off of your mom work. Which is so unbelievably stupid. But I just, I didn't catch it. And I'm only now beginning to process that. And I applaud you for talking about it because mm -hmm. you're clearly not the only person who does that. But I do want to talk a little bit about not only the encouragement for your daughter to drink, but also how you felt your attitude towards her would shift after you had a few. As anybody who's had a couple of glasses of wine, there's that tipping point where you've had two and you're jolly and you're making fun and you're laughing and then you had three and maybe things can get a little dark and you can get a little defensive. And, and when my daughter turned 16, 17, and she would be angry at me for whatever reason, we were having our classic mother-daughter fights. She's she, a 16-year-old girl. She's, she's angry at everyone. Girl. 
Yeah. I can remember one time she came at me about my Instagram feed and, and I had been drinking at the dinner table. Like literally it was just me, my husband and her. And I probably had made my way through one of those whole bottles of organic wine by myself at this point. And she made some kind of like offhand but funny but sort of rude comment about how I'm, I was a little thirsty in my Instagram posts about <laughs> something. And then I suddenly out of my mouth like like some kind of exorcist came out like some of the cruelest stuff I've ever said to anyone about her feed, which I had then gone through and looked at and which was, you know, that of a 16 year old TikTok star <laughs> looking like, you know, a little hotty toddy. And I went after her, but with like the most lacerating, rude, fat, it was like a slap upside her head. And she burst into tears and left the room. And my husband looked at me and he said, I can't even believe you said any of that. Like you are going to hurt her for the rest of like, that's going to hurt for the rest of her life. It was like you, you were said. possessed. That's oh, not got, something in your clear. You know, your thinking like mind you would have said yeah. to the person you love most in the world. No. You wouldn't have done that had you not been, had drinking. I not been drinking. And you recognize that and oh that that was the epiphanal moment. It was it was one of a several moments, but it was one very, very powerful one where I couldn't walk it back. And I also recognized that, yeah, right, Michelle, I would not have said I would have been much more measured. I probably would have laughed off that comment. Probably got it would have gotten up and huffed off and, you know, done something else. But because I was drinking, I laid into her so hard and I hurt somebody that I desperately love and in a way that as I remember and you probably all both remember there are things that you'll never forgive your parents for you'll yeah. never forgive them for some of the things they said to you this was one of those moments and we have a much greater understanding now mm -hmm. of how lasting a traumatic comment it's can traumatic. be so you're actually coming at this whole experience with all of that knowledge mm -hmm. and so the guilt oh, that you felt it. is that much more intense because you're actually like projecting into oh. the you know far future I mean and, how and it doesn't matter that her. I ran down the stairs after her and went into her room and held her really hard and said how sorry I was and then even hours later came back in and said I was uh, it was reprehensible what I said and that I had been hurt and that I'd responded it didn't matter I had a lot of rage that I had been pushing down for years and years and years stuff that I had repressed and alcohol when I would get a little too much on it would just uncork that feeling and I would lay into people and then I started recognizing that there was a pattern to this. The way that I came about quitting was pretty innocuous but it, I looked in the mirror one day and realized how chubby I was becoming and um, none of my clothes were fitting anymore and I started with that new map and I yeah. was I actually found it quite effective mostly because it you know you're journaling all of your eating and you're you're suddenly becoming very mindful of everything you're doing but I didn't give up alcohol right away and I started losing weight but not in a, in a way that was very satisfying and eventually I just I turned to my husband and I said let's give up drinking for a week and just see how it feels and he said well I'm down let's do it the minute we stopped drinking even though it was literally like detox for us. Oh, um, I'm sure. Headaches, insomnia, sweats on the first week, the second week, just this like profound lethargy, like falling asleep mm -hmm. at 8.30 at night, really just like watching TV till 8.30 and then like crawling into bed and wanting to go to sleep, but then waking up again because our bodies were just not used to what I said before, which is that vitamin that I had been taking for 30 years. And the sugar uh, content. Or more. It's sugar, sugar and the booze. It's the sugar and the that. booze in your body recalibrating. It's Absolutely. like, what the hell's going on? Once we got through the sort of worst of the two weeks, we started to actually feel really good. And yeah. the 
weight really did come off. Like right away, eight pounds like that. And your skin is freaking next level. Thank All you. I've been thinking about the skin whole time here. And by the way, that is up. sober skin. You can tell people who don't drink their <laughs> skin. It, you can't get it if you drink. I don't care who you are. You don't get that skin without being sober. Well, interestingly with this, because Noom was successful for me, I found an app called Reframe, which works very similarly to Noom. And again, also has these daily sort of tasks that you do and records. Today was my 180th day. Today? Congratulations. We're at six months today. Yeah. And oh my God, I learned that my liver has completely reset. So like my liver is like has been fresh turnt, and clean. Fresh and, and that's clean what makes completely. apps like that so satisfying is that it is that measurable metric. The oh, the gamification is absolutely And essential. also for somebody like you who's a super high achiever, it's like you can, it's so satisfying <laughs> to be like, I've ticked these days off. Are there other tools that you relied on, whether it be working yes, out or many. finding more sober, curious friends? Or There's something that came up in the Reframe app that I actually really value and I've really run with, which is called Sober Treats, which were everything from buying myself a piece of jewelry to a trip or, uh, you know, a workout outfit or um, making time and dates with my girlfriends to do things that weren't centered around alcohol. So like, you know, going to a workout class or walking or an art class, I went a little bit deeper into my jewelry making. I found a lot of amazing Instagram leaders in this area who just really did not come across as preachy, were just as flawed as I was, and also just as accomplished as I was. I felt a real relatability with women my age and younger who were highly successful businesswomen who had also been trained to believe that a steady IV of alcohol was the way to manage your anxiety and your sense of belonging in the world because, let's face it, we yeah. are women who have imposter syndrome weighing on us at all times. We have to fight for our place at the table, and then once we're at the table, we have to really convince ourselves we belong there. And alcohol, drinking with the boys, drinking with your bosses, drinking with your colleagues, that's a huge part of the... the Don't even get me started on dating. Right, and dating, and, and friends of mine who are in, still in that dating pool, and, and, and it's, it's just so insidious, the amount of alcohol that's in your life all the time. So once you take it away, you feel very bare and naked, and also like a little like unworthy, like suddenly nobody's going to like me anymore. Nobody's going to find me interesting anymore. I must not be as interesting without alcohol. But what I realize is it's just like taking the volume on a stereo from like 11 just down to 10 for me because like literally that's all the difference it is I'm just as bombastic I'm just as over emotional I'm just as chatty gossipy well as I ever having was. spent time with you drinking and not drinking I can't tell the difference yeah, exactly. to be honest <laughs> I'm really not different I'm very grateful for that so even though Josie did an unbelievable job of wrestling this issue to the ground herself I do want to bring in someone from our cleanup crew just to give some tips to anybody out there who's exploring sober curiosity and might want to step away from the drink. So I figured out the perfect cleanup crew expert to bring on. It's Ruby Warrington, who actually coined the term sober curious and then wrote a book of the same name. And she's really the perfect person to just give tips to anybody out there who is thinking about curbing their alcohol consumption or quitting
putting all together. So thank you, Ruby, for joining Messy Situations. Thank you for having me, Michelle. This is, it's great to be here. So, you know, we had this long conversation with Josie and she actually had the fortitude to quit pretty much cold turkey on her own, but not everybody has that. I mean, to be perfectly frank, I am a consistent social drinker and the idea of going sober strikes fear in my heart. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. So I don't necessarily plan on, you know, giving it up anytime soon. But I also recognize as a wellness person, as a wellness journalist, that there are tons of benefits to at least cutting back, if not giving it up altogether. So could you just kind of run us through what some of those benefits are? Absolutely. I mean, the list is so, so long. Like truly, I do believe that of all of the wellness practices that I've engaged with over the past 10, 12 years, quitting drinking probably has brought me the most tangible, everyday, actual real life benefits. It begins with just getting a really good night's sleep every night. And from there, if we know anything about how important sleep is and how sleep deprived so many of us are, getting your eight hours uninterrupted sleep, and I'm not gonna guarantee that to everyone who quits drinking. But it's such a good point because people have, are under the false assumption that drinking actually helps you sleep. It doesn't. It might initially help you sleep, but then it disrupts your sleep tremendously. So that, that benefit alone is huge because that impacts your overall health. Exactly. So that benefits you by giving you more energy. When you have more energy, you're more productive. You're a kinder person. You have more resilience in the face of challenges. All of these things are directly, I believe, related to getting more sleep. And as you correctly said, I think it's like 72% of Americans who drink use alcohol as a sleep aid. But actually, most people will have experienced that waking up at 3, 4 a.m., slightly hungover after even a couple of glasses of wine, mind racing, unable to get back to sleep. This is something I hear very commonly from people who do want to cut back because they're concerned that, they're, that, that the alcohol is disrupting their sleep. It's so true. And as someone who drinks socially, you know, I'm fond of trying to lean on those little tidbits that say like a little bit of alcohol is okay. And in red wine, there's, you know, antioxidants. But the truth is, the hard truth is alcohol is not good for you. It's just, it's not. I mean, no amount is really good for us. Ultimately, no amount. And I think some studies came out just very recently that sort of proved once and for all that even a glass of wine a couple of times a week can significantly increase our risk of breast cancer, for example, as one example of that. But I think, yeah, in terms of other benefits, um, for me, a big one, I used to drink alcohol to feel more confident. Like you, I was a social drinker. And what I realized when I took it away is that I actually have a lot of social anxiety and I was using alcohol to ease my social anxiety. But what I've realized is that learning to socialize without alcohol has generated so much more inner confidence, which I've been able to bring to other areas in my life as well. So for me, just feeling more confident, not feeling like I'm relying on this external toxic substance to live my life, to perform in certain situations has been hugely empowering on a kind of psychological level as well. I mean, we live in such an age of like information overload that I think <laughs> any more kind of clarity, any more sort of sense of grounding or centeredness that we can gift ourselves. And for me and for many people who have either quit alcohol or really like reevaluated their relationship with alcohol and got much more conscious about their consumption, that sense of groundedness and sort of inner peace is one of the biggest sort of unexpected benefits that people consistently report back. So for people who need a little assistance getting on this road, they want to try it out, they want to test it out, but they're nervous about like, what am I going to do when I go out with friends? Or what am I going to do at a dinner? Or what am I going to do on a first date? or at a party or at a work event or at a wedding or at any of the bazillions of places 
that alcohol is woven into the experience. What are just a couple of tools and tips that you would give to kind of start getting more comfortable with maybe being the only one in the room who's not drinking? First thing I would like to say is these fears are very, very normal and natural. I talk about FOMA, the fear of missing alcohol, (laughs) because for the majority of us, if we're used to drinking in certain situations, and I would argue that's most situations where we're not at work, like vacations, dinners, other social events, like family time, alcohol is the ever-present kind of social lubricant. So of course, if we've been used to having that since our teenage years for a lot of us, the thought of not having it is of course going to make us like freak out a little bit. The FOMA is going to be there. So first of all, don't think that you're weak or there's anything wrong with you for feeling kind of anxious about what life might be like without alcohol. The second thing I will say is that if you are asking yourself those questions, what would life be like without alcohol? Am I drinking too much? Could I benefit from taking a break? The answer is probably yes, because if it wasn't, you wouldn't be asking those questions in the first place. Listen to yourself. Know that there's a part of you that is encouraging you. Hey, give this a try. Because the honest truth is you're not going to be able to answer those questions until you remove the alcohol and actually see for yourself. What is it like having dinner with my friends when I'm the only one not drinking? Oh, well, maybe sometimes it's great because my friends are really supportive of my choice. But maybe with this group of friends, I feel really awkward and really judged. And perhaps maybe I don't want to hang out with them so much. The truth is you might make some different choices and that might not be such a bad thing. But for times when you do want to be with that group or you want to participate, how do you approach it? Like, do you order a mocktail, for example? I mean, that might be really pedestrian suggestion, but what sort of do you do to kind of just feel like you're blending in or you're, I mean, maybe you don't want, maybe that's not the point blending in, but to feel like you're still part of the experience. Well, yeah, you said, is this a really pedestrian, this is actually really, really important. Knowing what I'm going to drink in those situations can really remove a big layer of anxiety. You know, what am I going to answer when someone asks, what am I drinking? What is going to be on the menu for me? Like, it seems really basic, but it's actually kind of a big deal. And I'm so grateful that in the past sort of two, three years, there's been a huge explosion of amazing alcohol-free drinks. And the other thing I would say on a more psychological level, a lot of the times when we think about removing alcohol, we think about it as losing something. We do feel like we're going to be missing out. When I like to kind of flip that and just even if it means writing a list out for yourself, putting something on a sticky note on your refrigerator, keeping something in the notes app on your phone, just writing out all of the positive reasons that you're experimenting or that you're gonna choose to be sober curious for a while. Perhaps you could even include like some of the things you wanna make space for in your life when you're not consumed with hangovers. And a lot of people are like, God, what am I gonna do on a Friday night? And that kind of dooms like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? It's kind of like, what could I do with my Friday night when I'm not drinking, you know? And I know that my Saturday morning isn't going to be a write-off as well. So I think just that mindset shift is really important and a really key piece to being sober curious because it's about getting curious about like how could my life actually expand and improve without alcohol. So people can pick up Sober Curious, your book, and also where else can they find you and information about you and this amazing advice that you have to give? So I I created a follow-up book called The Sober Curious Reset as well, which actually guides people through 100 days of not drinking. And that's got a little exercise and tons of really practical tips that people can kind of use to take an extended break from alcohol. I also have a podcast, the Sober Curious podcast, where I talk to 
all kinds of people about their relationship to various different substances and behaviors that have maybe got a little bit too entrenched in their lives. So that's a great resource too. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Josie, I'm just so absolutely impressed and awed by this journey that you've been on and where you've arrived. And I know you're not, you're still learning and growing and experimenting, but I am terribly happy that you're in this place and you are you're glowing just like Kane said <laughs> so at the end of every episode we like to bless this mess and that is our way of just saying it's all good we all have messes talking about it is empowering it's relatable to so many people out there so we just bless this mess and let the healing begin thank you so much for your story today. oh my pleasure uh, it has truly been one of my highlights so far Kudos to you for taking Thank a messy you. situation and making it a beautiful one. Thank you so much again, Josie. Mm, my pleasure. Messy Situations is a production of Lola Media and is produced and engineered by Riley McCaskill with assistant producer Mesh Lakani. 